Selection podcast. Today, your hosts are myself, Amelia, and me, Caroline. This episode is a little bit longer than usual, so we're just going to hop straight in. And we hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Natural Selection podcast. Today, Caroline and I are joined by Claire Collins. Claire is currently a PhD student at the University of Exeter, and her research interests lie in a combined socio-ecological perspective on marine policy and management. And she's recently published a paper titled Using Perceptions to Examine Human Responses to Blanket Bans, the Case of the Thresher Shark Landing Ban in Sri Lanka. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this with us today, Claire. Um, We'd like to start off by asking if you could tell us a little bit more about your career journey so far and what's inspired your research. Yeah, so I studied zoology at university and then I went on to do a master's, which was looking at water management. I interned at a company that managed like fisheries projects, but they also managed a marine protected area, which is in the Indian Ocean, which is called the British Indian Ocean Territory or Chagos. And I got involved with that as part of my thesis project. And it was looking at social elements, context and drivers for uh, illegal fishing within the MPA. Because although it's a really kind of like large remote MPA, there's still a lot of illegal fishing that happens there. So I did that for my master's project. And then I kind of went away and did some other marine conservation stuff. So I spent some time in Fiji and in Indonesia and I just fell more in love with kind of like marine conservation from that side of things. And then I saw um, a PhD was coming up on almost the same topic. So luckily I, I got that. So yeah, I think I was just interested in kind of looking at more of the social side of things. So I'm more of like a social scientist. So I was really excited to be able to explore kind of some of those social issues around illegal fishing in a lot more detail through this PhD. So for our listeners who are not well versed in shark biology, could you explain a bit about why sharks are vulnerable to fisheries and what are the main motivations for targeting them? Oh, yeah. So I'm definitely um, more of a social scientist. I feel like I always bodge up um, shark biology and ecology things. But in general, they're vulnerable to exploitation because of their life history strategies. So a lot of them are really late to mature. And then when they do reproduce, it's only one or two pups, so one or two young and some of them, they only do that sort of every year or even like manta rays. I think they only do it every few years. So if one reproductive individual is taken out from the population, then it just means that it has a massive effect. I guess that kind of comes up with the fact that they have interacted with fisheries traditionally a lot. A lot of shark landings are bycatch. Some estimates are sort of up to about a half of everything that's landed is actually kind of what is termed to be bycatch. So that's not saying that it's not useful and that it's not used. It's just it's not kind of like the primary target for a lot of the fishers. So a lot of the tuna and other large pelagics such as billfish or anything along those lines, when we're looking to target that, it's very hard to make 
the gear for them specific so sharks often get caught and then I guess there's been kind of other things that have interacted with it as well so you've got the fin trade so fins have been valuable for quite a long time now and seen as a kind of a status thing so they're eaten a lot in traditionally Asian markets that kind of uh, yeah coincided with the expansion of fisheries but yeah I guess that it's not the same everywhere so fins aren't the primary you know target driver for some fisheries but um, it's definitely caused a lot of the unsustainable practices such as spinning that we see nowadays so it's just been a bit of a heady mix for these the poor sharks really so um yeah there was a I think it was in nature the paper that was out I think it was a couple of weeks ago saying that there's sort of been I think it was something terrifying like 70 percent declines in yeah a whole lo- load of the species so um for some sharks it, it really is they're in not a good state yes Caroline and I were just talking about that paper actually um I think it was since 1970 there's been a 71 71- percent decrease in the global abundance of sharks and rays which is really shocking statistic um so claire in your most recent paper you focused on the fishing of thresher sharks which are currently listed as endangered and that ultimately led to the blanket ban of thresher shark fishing in sri lanka in 2012 but prior to this ban what were the main drivers for thresher shark fishing in sri lanka yeah so thresher sharks are Firstly, just really beautiful and um, obviously have lovely fins and everything. And they were considered to be kind of like the most vulnerable pelagic family because just their life history strategies and also the fact that they have been quite heavily targeted in areas. So Sri Lanka, which is the country that that paper is based on, is was very quick to respond to the um, kind of concerns at an international and a regional level. So there was obviously, like you said, there was a listing of them as kind of uh, really vulnerable. And then CITES listed them. So international trade was subject to regulations. So yeah, so so they kind of introduced stuff that's designed to act on trade. So there's several different levels of it. Some species, if they're really vulnerable, you're not allowed to export them, import them, anything. Uh, But then other ones you can apply for a permit with threshers were kind of moved into the CITES regulations also at a regional level the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission said we need to stop catching of threshers kind of within our regional area that we are responsible for so Sri Lanka responded to that and they introduced a blanket ban so we initially weren't going to look at this because it wasn't necessarily something that was high up my kind of priority list when I was looking at my PhD However, when we started speaking to fishers within the communities that we were working in, uh, a lot of them were saying that this was a big problem for them in terms of they hadn't felt like they'd been consulted or it was leading to other problems for them. So the threshers might be interacting with their net still and ruining the nets, but they couldn't land them, so they couldn't get any compensation. And then also the ones that relied on it for you know almost all of their income, so targeted fisheries they were saying that it had kind of like a massive social impact on them so yeah so we kind of investigated that further and did lots of speaking to fishers using focus groups to find out kind of what impacts it had whether there was any lessons that could be kind of learned from this blanket ban that might help other blanket bans in the future so I guess blanket bans are I would say increasingly being introduced because some shark species are considered really vulnerable to exploitation. So, you know, you're not going to do anything. You can't fish them to a sustainable level. So I think it's really interesting that we should learn lessons from the ones that have been introduced, such as this one. 
Um, so as you said, the blanket ban was introduced in 2012. And just on reading up before this interview, I saw that the paper in 2015 said that there was a decline in uh, treasure shark reported landings. And I was just wondering what your opinion is on this. Is it that the ban is working and that they're, um, that the fishermen obviously aren't fishing them? And do you think that if this is the case, is there any signs of an improvement in the abundance of treasure sharks from the fishers you were speaking to? Were they saying that they're seeing more? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's a really important one to be asking as well, because it's obviously if you introduce something, you want to know if it's working or not. We think that the ban has worked relatively well in terms of targeted fisheries seem to receive um, the ones that used to catch it, there used to be a small targeted fishery off the south coast and the fishers had said that they'd, they'd stopped and it would be really hard for them to kind of do it illegally because they would get caught. And when we were there, we only saw like a handful of fresher sharks. So if you compare that to, I think they were the third most landed or second most landed species in Stranka before. So they made up around 15% of the landings before that. So yeah, now it just seems like they are gone from the markets completely. So yeah, that would indicate that hopefully that has done something to help the population status. And this was something that when we spoke to the fishers, they were really keen to kind of understand how their actions had then translated into population recovery. However, unfortunately, with shark species, that it's really hard. Well, with any marine species, it's quite hard to get surveys on them because, you know, you can't see them. Um, so you have to kind of investigate other ways to do it that take quite a lot of you know resources and and time as well so for a lot of sharks we don't really actually understand you know what their population status is so when regulations are introduced it's really hard to then track the recovery of them and then to relay this back to the people that it's actually affecting which is super important obviously to say that you know you've made this sacrifice but they are recovering so maybe we could reopen the fisheries so it is really hard because we can't actually say whether it is working or it isn't working yeah because if you can't kind of collect population data in the traditional way you could speak to fishers and that was obviously one thing that we did we asked them whether they thought that the populations were recovering and we just had such a diversity of responses um that it's really hard to say anything from that so for those that used to target them before so that were really kind of closely linked with the fisheries they weren't visiting the same areas they they did previously because obviously they didn't want to catch them anymore so they couldn't really tell us anything and the ones that were catching them inadvertently through bycatch that were still visiting the same areas, we just had such diverse responses. Some people said, oh, there's so many now, you know, there's loads, there's loads. I don't understand, um, you know, why we can't fish them. But then similarly, other people just said, you know, we just don't catch. We rarely catch them anymore. Um, we asked them how many they kind of caught per trip as bycatch. And some people said they would catch one or two accidentally, whereas other people said that sometimes they still caught up to 30 to 50 or something like that. So um, basically really hard to say, but um, it's a really important thing that I think we should carry on working on. I think that leads nicely to the next question, because you just mentioned that some people um, are finding it difficult to understand why there's such a stringent ban when they're still seeing quite high abundances of thresher sharks. So do you think that like how well enforced is the ban? Has it kind of led to an increase in IUU fishing, which for listeners is illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing of thresher sharks? Um, or do people generally aren't doing that and are respecting it and actually they're not being caught? Yeah, so that was one of the things that we were really interested to look at. It's We were interested to know whether the people that relied on them the most to start with, so these people that were relying on them for their whole income, so the targeted fishers, we called them, 
we wanted to know whether they were complying with it and then compare that to the people that traditionally are thought to just catch it kind of accidentally. So the, the bycatch fishers. And what we found actually was the targeted fishers, there was such a high level of compliance because potentially several reasons, because they said it was really hard to land them illegally because they land to really small market um, kind of landing sites. So they said that it would be really obvious to anyone in the community and any kind of fisheries officers if they were starting to land them because they're such a distinctive species if they're landed with their fins on as well. Um, and also because they said that the wider community potentially wouldn't approve of it either. But that was just that was what some of our data was telling us. And we found that the, the other fishers, the one that might catch them sometimes spy catch, they were mostly complying. Um, we found indications that there might be low levels of non-compliance and that was facilitated by them cutting off the fins, which are obviously the most distinctive part of them because the fin is kind of as long as the body and it's really, you know, you know that's a thresher shark when you see it. So it was a case of it might kind of be the other way around to finning. So, you know, they're kind of chucking the fins back and keeping the meat, which is obviously the opposite of what you see when you think about shark illegal practices. You See quite a lot of the time of these horrible images of um, sharks kind of drowning without their fins and being thrown back but in this case it might be that the fins are being discarded into the sea and the meat is still being landed because the fishers are still catching it and they are likely to be dead by the time that they are pulled in because their gear is in the water for quite a long time these fishers so um, and threshers need to kind of keep moving to be breathing so most of the time they're dead on haulback so um, there is kind of that temptation there to to keep the meat or to potentially consume it as they're at sea um, as a source of fresh fish as well because they're out there for quite a long time so it, it does seem to be relatively low levels and the people that were targeting them before do seem to be complying but um, there are kind of you know, suggestions that some practices are happening that are not compliant. So is it is it um, illegal to catch a thresher shark as bycatch and then sell it for meat if it was completely accidental? Do those fish just kind of get wasted if they already die? What happens? Yeah, so that's like one of the terrible things when it's so hard for fisheries management in general because fishers can't selectively target a lot of the time because they set the long lines with the hooks and they have absolutely no control over what comes and they get caught on them. So that's a massive source of frustration for the fishers that we spoke to is that not their fault that threshers do get caught on it. And shark meat is readily consumed in Sri Lanka. Thresher mm -hmm. uh, meat is quite valuable in terms of the species. It's one of the more highly favoured ones. And if it's fresh, then it can fetch a good price. So for those fishers not landing the meat is just throwing money back in the sea and they said to us it's a waste for us it's a waste for the sea what good can it do there we might as well land it so I think that is a massive source of frustration for the fishers for sure that we spoke to. And um, so a huge driver of uh, lack of compliance and conservation schemes seem to be related to like loss of income so we were just wondering if there is any compensation schemes for the fishers especially the targeted fishers when they introduced the ban? No so well I mean I can only speak for what the fishers said to us and they said um, there wasn't necessarily a lot of uh, stuff in place to kind of help cushion the blow as it, as it is when it introduced. So they said that not only did they lose their income, but they lost money in terms of their gear and their, their equipment was specific for targeting freshers. And because of the nature of the boats, they're relatively smaller. 
So it's harder for them to switch to catching another species. You know, they can't go as far out as these bigger boats. They have less options available to them. So they're kind of limited to the kind of closer waters. So they said now that they're targeting smaller fish that are like a lot less valuable for them to try and land them. And they, they said, you know, quite a few things in terms of as a community, the problem was as well that a lot of fishers were reliant on it in the community. So it just it didn't just affect them, but it affected their family and it affected their friends as well. So there is definitely the potential for blanket bans um, to have a serious impact on communities. So on the flip side of that, without economic benefits, your paper highlights social factors which might influence compliance. So things like perceived social norms, social pressures transparency of policy and like legitimacy of authority how do you think these factors translate to compliance of the ban yeah so I think compliance with um and I guess that's what my PhD is looking at as well like um in some broader context looking at other things as well like compliance with MPA policy and other things as well so compliance is such a broad topic in terms of really context specific and there's so many different drivers they'll affect different people differently but they'll also affect different fleets differently because of the different social situations so thinking about social issues so it'll be kind of like social norms so what you like what other people approve of and that kind of affects what you think is okay to do so if you steal like a penny sweet from the shop when you were younger you might be more inclined to do it because you saw somebody else had stolen a gobstopper or something and then that just affects your own kind of like internal set of beliefs and what you think other people will adhere to so there is evidence and specifically to shark fishes as well that if you see other people doing something illegally then you're more likely to think potentially that it's that it's okay so you, you might do it as well we found other things with compliance so say looking at for example compliance with mpa policy other social issues such as uh, social networks so who you're kind of engaging with that's really important because it does affect social norms but also you might it might be easier for you to share information about how you go about non-compliance which might lower the risk of non-compliance for you so for example in the case of like the thresher shark ban you might know someone that knows how to sell it because obviously if you land something illegally you need to know that you're going to be able to sell it so it's who you know as well so it interlinks with that um so yeah so there is obvious economic reasons for doing it high prices of meat and fins but there are lots of other kind of issues that can interlink with that and that's why it's so important that even within Sri Lanka which is a really small country we found that different issues were affecting different parts of the fleet and different fleets themselves differently so it's definitely never going to be a one-size-fits-all to kind of identify what things are driving non-compliance it re requires kind of speaking to people on the ground teasing out what might be most important for those particular set of fishers. So as we can see from what you said so far fisheries and fisheries management can be quite a sensitive topic to research um, so we were just wondering, like, how did you find approaching this subject as coming in from a foreigner and a different culture? How did you have to kind of change your approach to be respectful of their culture and their own like ways of life? Yeah, so so I actually was really lucky to work with an NGO in Sri Lanka called Ocean Swell. So it's run by Dr. Asha DeVos. Um, it's kind of a relatively new organisation, but they one of the main things that they're looking to do is to build the kind of opportunities for Sri Lankan researchers. So um, I teamed up with them 
and together we recruited three amazing researchers who did all of the speaking to fishers on the ground themselves. So they did all of the methods in Singhalese, which is the local language, and they were able to speak to fishers about you know issues that they identified in that way. So I was really lucky to see that. I think it's really important that when you're working in other countries that you you know understand that it's a privilege to work in those countries it's not something that should be taken for granted like the fact that I was able to do that is a massive privilege and it's only through the work of Ocean Spell and the researchers that I worked with that I was actually able to do that so what we tried to do throughout is have quite a long field season you know like over a year and built relationships with some of the key people there so with the traders and with the fishers so that when they were kind of asking questions that were about sensitive issues, the people they were speaking to knew who they were, who who they were representing, and kind of knew that what they would be telling them would be anonymous and confidential, and that the point of the research wasn't to try and pinpoint people that were doing illegal fishing. It was rather to try and understand how kind of fisheries management can be adapted to actually be of benefit to the fishers as well so definitely um really sometimes quite hard topics to discuss and um being at sites for a longer period of time is is really important rather than just parachuting in and just getting some data and then kind of leaving sounds like the obviously the better way to approach things and definitely um so it seems that it's really benefited your research and you think that like your responses were representative because as you said like you had a better rapport with the fishers was it yourself working with them or is it more so the local conservation groups that were working with them yeah so the three researchers who I worked with they did all of the speaking to them I did go to the markets on a few occasions during the early stages to try and understand how the methods were going to work so how we're going to able to actually use data collection sheets and who we needed to speak to so I kind of spent a few months out there but then after that they were doing all of the speaking with the fishers and they kind of built really good relationships with some of the traders as well um yeah they were just so helpful some of the people that we spoke to and because we were also looking at value chains as well so we were trying to understand some of the uh, benefits so kind of like the social benefits of shark fisheries to try and understand if you do introduce more management or regulations who is that going to affect because that's still quite unclear for a lot of shark species. It's not clear how much money they're kind of bringing in for fishers or other people. So we were really keen to do that work as well. So um, yeah, through kind of that process every morning, so they go really early. So kind of like uh, 3 a.m. for one of the markets and the other one's around 6 a.m. And they would go there and they would spend five, six, sometimes even seven hours there just speaking with the fishers, collecting data on the prices of the sharks and who was buying them. So just by being there for so many hours they kind of got really familiar with the people there yeah they were completely invaluable and I think it's really important that they're also co-researchers as well so they're kind of authors on the papers and um yeah so if the ban was 100% effective could you see the pressure that was being put on thresher sharks just being moved elsewhere yeah so I think regulatory displacement is a massive thing and I definitely think within this context it was something that kept hitting me is really important as well so there are a small amount of targeted shark fishes still left in Sri Lanka so it's declined a lot from its boom time I guess when there were much higher populations um, and 
some of those that do still target sharks said to us that, you know, we don't target freshers in that place anymore. Instead, we go here and we target, you know, reef species. Um, so there has definitely been some sort of displacement in terms of the effort. And I mean, you see that for kind of areas as well. So if you close off one area, the inevitability is that pressure obviously has to go somewhere else. So I think that that is definitely can be the case for shark species as well. And I think it's really important that regulations kind of match up with each other in, in that way, that when thinking about it's kind of it's a coordinated set of management that we have in place for shark species. So, for example, as well, speaking about mantis as well, that's something that obviously they're still high value species. So the gill rakers are kind of really going to quite similar markets and they can fetch high prices still in Sri Lanka. And we saw a lot, a lot of landings in the markets and we were kind of wondering whether or not there's been that movement to catch these species because, you know, the fins are increasingly subject to management regulations. So is it that fishers are choosing to kind of switch to something else that they know can get really high value? So that sort of idea of moving towards kind of predicting what might happen. So this kind of predictive conservation, not just reacting to what happens when you introduce the management, but kind of predicting it as well. I think that's really important to think about moving forwards. Mm, that's really interesting. Actually, I was talking in a seminar the other day about um, the International Whaling Commission and some of the rules that they have. They have except, um, exceptions on bans for groups that are fishing whales on a small scale, a not-for-profit scale, um, just to feed local communities. And you mentioned in your paper that some of the fishers do just hunt thresher sharks on a small scale for food security reasons. Do you think there'd be scope to introduce a policy which allows for quotas of certain amounts of thresher sharks to be fished by certain groups to reduce high social economic impact on the kind of smaller scale fisheries compared to industrial fleets who maybe won't feel the cost as much? Yeah, so I think in terms of kind of shark management, there's, yeah, kind of thinking about introducing more fisheries management style things like that. So looking at small amounts of quotas or seasonal fishing or something like that. That's something that I know is being discussed in Sri Lanka at the moment to kind of lessen the social impacts on those targeted fishes that we discussed earlier. So I think sustainable fisheries management is definitely a good idea. I mean, blanket bans are good for some species, but they do have consequences and they're not perfect in terms of they're very rigid the only kind of problem with that move towards the sustainable management and thinking about individual quotas or kind of fishing days or something like that, it is just the ability to manage it because, mm. you know, there's a lot of species landed in Sri Lanka. So thinking about, OK, can we introduce quotas for particular species? I think that's really exciting and that's something that would be definitely good to work towards. But it's just it's just quite difficult to manage in terms of resources. If you've got lots of different landing sites, it's difficult to think about how you might um, understand what is then being taken and how you might regulate that. So I think that's definitely something exciting to work towards and it would lessen the social impacts. It just needs, it's very like data and resource heavy. So it would need quite a lot of thinking and yeah, to happen. As you've already mentioned at the beginning of the interview about the recent study that highlighted that since 1970s, there's been a 71% decline in oceanic sharks and rays. And one of the main causes they highlighted in that uh, research was that there was an 18-fold increase in fishery pressures. And um, these results are quite a reality check. Like, I was so shocked when I saw this and it was quite hard to read. But it was obviously from this paper that 
current protective measures are not working for sharks and in your research you do look at how socioeconomic factors are often overlooked when it comes to conservation measures such as blanket bans and as you've just touched on there with that answer what is your opinion on current management efforts to support the replenishment of shark populations and what do you think are the major changes that we need to make in order to reduce further declines of sharks? Yeah, no, that was a truly terrifying paper, wasn't it? Um, it's uh, it's really scary, especially when I start to think about some of the incredibly amazing species that there are, you know, especially some of the more coastal ones, kind of like sawfish and stuff like that, that are just being lost before we have even understood anything about them, really. Um, and I think that, yeah, that fishing pressure is a key cause, isn't it? So we do need to look to fisheries to try and improve the way that they're managed in order to reduce just the overall exploitation. So whether that's um, the landings themselves or whether the fact that they're being incidentally captured and potentially even thrown back. So I think that a lot of discussion about what is the best way forward in terms of is it these more kind of blanket bans so these kind of cessation of exploitation completely is that the way to go forward or is it more to work towards the kind of quota management side of things and I think the real power that can come from integrating these kind of social perspectives is it will help us to direct which ones might be more suitable for the context because I think it's really difficult to say this one or this one would be best overall I think it's going to be you know kind of like a suite of different management measures according to where you are who it's going to affect and what species you're talking about and I think the real power that comes in when you do start to look at social perspectives and not just how can we improve our understanding of biology all of that stuff is so important as well I mean data is so important for shark fisheries and I think that's been a massive realization you know with papers like this is we need to understand more because we just don't understand a lot about you know kind of populations and, and, and extraction and then I think bringing then the social perspectives into it thinking about will these managements work in this place because who's it going to affect are they likely to comply with it because of what drivers are in place for them to comply or for them to not comply? So I think it's really an exciting time to think about, OK, let's really kind of work with fishers themselves. I think there's been some really nice papers out recently that have looked at how we can actually use kind of stakeholders such as fishers and traders themselves, how we can use their participation to increase our understanding. So there was a paper that was looking at you know fins so just collecting fins from fisheries to try and understand what sharks are being landed so instead of relying on just fishes themselves to kind of id these species and then you know collect it during a busy fishing trip which is really hard for fishers can we collect data from fins to understand it that way or we just did a study that was looking at like participatory mapping so it was asking fishers where they go and you know what they catch there and i think those kind of techniques are really exciting maybe because I'm a marine social scientist that's why I think they're exciting but like also I think it's really exciting to think about how we can actually actively work with stakeholders such as these to collect more data that will give us a different perspective to the traditional way so yeah I think there's definitely work to be done and I think it's really great what's happening at the moment because there's so much attention being put on it now and I think that stuff needs to happen fast and, and I, I think it's going in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, from what you've just said, there's a clear need to consider social impacts of fisheries management. And obviously the research is there, like you've just mentioned a few papers. But do you think this is actually happening in policy? So it's obviously being written about, it's being talked about, but can you see it actually 
being implemented at government level? I think there's definitely a really amazing appetite, especially from some of the larger shark fishing nations. You know, there's some really exciting stuff happening in Indonesia with fishers that I've been seeing recently. And obviously India as well. I've done some work there and I think there is some really exciting stuff happening. I think in like Europe as well, we definitely have a responsibility because I think sometimes we might think that we're kind of doing quite well, but there's a lot of extraction still happening of shark species and or sharks and rays. And I think we definitely need to look as to whether these exploitation levels are actually sustainable. Um, and I think that all the kind of international regulations are doing a good job. I think it's about just making sure that the policies are actually relevant because there's a lot of pressure on um, countries such as Sri Lanka for them to translate these international policy. And it's happening at a pace that is really quite fast. So, you know, over the space of like a decade, they're expected to introduce management for a whole host of species that essentially they really don't understand a lot about in terms of how many people, how many are being landed. So I think there's a lot of pressure on countries to massively change their systems and there needs to be international support and consensus on, on the best way to do it, because otherwise the pressure might end up being unfairly on countries just because of the fact that they have these amazing species present in their waters. I think there needs to be a lot of kind of international support for this kind of thing. Um, and just on that point, what has been the overall response to your study? Like, do you think that people have been responding quite positively? Because obviously as well, you've published, like you're within the University of Exeter. So a lot of like Western countries are going to be seeing this study. So we might be getting more exposed to something we might not have thought about, as you were saying, like how there's a lot of pressure on these countries like Sri Lanka to increase their protection measures on these species like sharks. And it's not just up to them that like we have to also pull our weight and we have to contribute. So like, do you think that this has been a good uptake from the results of your study? Do you think people are becoming more aware and maybe want to participate more in like helping these species? Yeah, I think it's really difficult to know as a scientist because you're kind of in your own your own area. So it's really difficult to gauge whether your research has actually affected anyone that's outside of your area. And I think that's one of the massive issues with science itself. It's really hard to gauge whether if it's having any effect. I mean, I think it's really exciting working, especially with Sri Lankan researchers, that they can do events in Sri Lanka as well. I think I think that's really exciting. And working with someone amazing like Dr. Asha DeVos, that's also really exciting because she has such a high profile in Sri Lanka. So I think it's really nice to have research kind of coming out from within her team, conducted by her team, and to get conversations around that sort of thing started. So that's the thing that gives me feelings that potentially stuff is happening as well, that, you know, I do think that there are kind of increasing conversations around that sort of things. Yeah, you're really right. It seems to be like the time for sharks at the moment, even with the like introduction of the ban on Makos in Spain and Portugal. Like it just seems to be like there's a lot of momentum with shark conservation at the moment, which is very exciting, especially seeing everyone in this conversation seems to be a bit of a shark nut because I'm obsessed with sharks. So it's a big, big time for me. Um, well, just for the last question, end on a positive note. Um, just what are your hopes for the future, not only with like terrestrial sharks and like conservation policies, but like your research as well? Quite like a heavy loaded question, but like, you know, what are your hopes for the future then? Um, yeah, I definitely think it's really exciting to have more and more let's integrate social stuff better into conservation in general but also into sharks in general I think that's really exciting I think there's been some really cool research that's been coming out that has just been looking at like 
like relatively simple stuff but like let's actually understand what benefits these sharks are bringing so that we can kind of broaden the topic and the conversation from sharks and then like shark attacks you know it's just it seems like it's a, becoming a much broader conversation which is so exciting um and i think it's really important and um yeah we've got another couple of papers that are in at the moment and they're kind of looking at some other techniques which are mapping the areas where fishes go and then looking at kind of hotspots for sharks hotspots for and the tuna so I think that's really exciting and then also looking at how kind of bleeds interact with marine protected areas and kind of trying to bring in social dimensions um into those into MPAs as well so um I think yeah it's great I'm really hoping it's not like a because I feel like there's always a new exciting species every now and again and sharks are definitely having their day aren't they so I will definitely ride that that wave and then I think um I think it's really good I think conversations are getting more kind of like yeah varied and just lots more data being collected which is really exciting I think for the future well what a great episode a big thank you to Claire for coming on and talking to us yeah thank you so much that was so inspiring and such an interesting talk let's hope this momentum keeps going and the heyday for sharks lasts a little longer and if you want to learn more about Claire's research make sure you check out her paper we'll post the link in our Twitter and Instagram accounts and if you want to see what her collaborators are getting up to, make sure to check out Oceanswell on their website at oceanswell.org to see the amazing work being done out in Sri Lanka. We hope you enjoyed listening today. And if you liked what you heard, please follow and like and share on our various social media channels. On Twitter, we are at UOE Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at Natural Selection underscore podcast. And you can find more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Music and Spotify.